The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations, in what's commonly known as Victoria, B.C., Canada. Today's episode is especially dedicated to all the parents out there of tweens and teens who are exploring their gender identity. Paria Hasuri is a pediatrician, mother of three, and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and the Huffington Post. She and her family live in LA, where she practices pediatrics at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. And she's the author of the book, Found in Transition, A Mother's Evolution During Her Child's Gender Change, a very frank, sometimes painfully honest account of parenting a transgender teen. Paria chronicles what amounts to a dual transition. As her child transitions from male to female, she navigates through anger, denial, and grief to eventually arrive at acceptance. Blindsided by her child's gender identity, Paria is also forced to examine how she still carries insecurities from her past of growing up as an Iranian-American immigrant in a predominantly white neighborhood. As the parent of a trans teen myself, whose child also transitioned in 2017, I could relate to some parts of Paria's experience for sure. Some parts were actually pretty hard to read and I maybe even felt a bit uncomfortable with some of her innermost thoughts at times, but I always really appreciated her naming her truth. I really do think that as parents, we need to have honest and very compassionate conversations amongst ourselves about how our kids' gender journeys do impact us, and they do intersect with our emotions, mental health, our identities, and politics. I'm not at all saying, I'm not even implying that our experience needs to be centered or decisive. I don't know, maybe even not that influential (laughs) in all cases, but I am saying that our experience as parents does need to be held with care too. And in some parallel process, one that's probably slower and longer than our kids might want, we do need to feel seen and heard, at least by our peers, if not by our kids. I'm super impressed with Paria for writing such a brave book, and it was an honor to hear more about her process and personal evolution, personally and professionally, on her journey parenting a trans teen. So Paria, what identities do you lead with? I think I've always led with mother. Um, I have a lot of identities, but I think 90% or 99% of who I am is is probably mother. Um, And and then I guess after that, um, it's hard to say, but wife, daughter, pediatrician, writer, Iranian American woman, um, advocate, friend. Hmm, that's great. In your book, you describe in raw detail the thoughts and emotions you had as your child came out to you as trans and revealed her true self to you. Can you start by telling us about that phone call that you received from the vice principal? So setting the scene, you and your husband are on vacation and your three kids are back home with your parents. What was that phone call about? What was it like? 
Yeah, so my husband and I hadn't taken a vacation alone without the children in a long time. And, and we were in Thailand on a yoga retreat, and it was around five in the morning. And when my phone rang, I just, my heart sank. I just had a feeling um, that, that it wasn't um, something good. And so, and it was the vice principal of Ava's school um, calling to let us know that they'd had to um, call my parents who were staying with the kids to come and pick her up um, because she had told um, one of her teachers that she was self-harming and that she was self-harming because she felt that she was not a boy and that she was a girl and she didn't know um, how to tell us. Um, it's It was the last thing on earth I expected to hear. I think if you had, I would have been less shocked by a phone call saying, oh, one of your kids was struck down by lightning <laughs> than um, your kid says they're trans because I had never, ever suspected that my child may have any sort of gender issue. And I think, you know, when your child is 13, you think you know their gender. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it was a lot of, I mean, it was really hard to be across the world and hear that your child is hurting herself. And I wasn't upset um, about the trans thing because I just thought, okay, the trans thing is not real. So that's not the issue. I'm just heartbroken that my kid is so lost, confused, something's going on that they're resort, you know, they are um, resorting to like self harm. And so it was really the self harm that was, uh, and she was doing some cutting, but um, it was the self harm that was um, so uh, like shocking and scary for me. And and the trans thing was just like, well, that's not actually what's going on, but uh, you know, I'll figure out what's actually going on when when (laughs) I get back. Mm -hmm. Well, and I just like to, amplify what you've said about how shocking it was. Um, My listeners know that uh, I have a trans son who's now 17 and had a sort of similar experience when they were 13, already had, um, you know, understood them to understand themselves as bisexual or lesbian, you know, curious, not sure. And that had been for about a year. Uh, And so this idea that something comes out of the blue that you don't know about your child and it's very shocking and it should be so obvious is it, this is very common. This is, Mm -hmm. you know, my situation was we were shopping for an outfit for my son to wear to his grandparents, his Italian older grandparents for Easter, you know, Mm -hmm. like second only to Christmas for important Catholic (laughs) holidays where you would dress up nicely. And we were at the mall for like three hours going from store to store. And he hated every single thing he was trying on. And he's in this young woman's store, Claire's or whatever it was, some Mm -hmm. fast fashion store in the dressing room. We're both getting frustrated because we hate capitalism and shopping. And he's texting me going, I hate this. I'm like, I'm having a meltdown. I can't do this. I'm like, just pick a goddamn shirt or dress. And he says, but I'm a boy. And I was just like, whatever, buy a goddamn dress. Like I I just didn't even believe, right? Like I, I, I was like, something's going on. Something's upsetting, but that is not the thing that 
I even could quite grok, you know, I couldn't quite grasp it at that time that I, and something was up clearly, but it never crossed my mind that I was missing this like very large um, issue. So I just want to share that story to help parents who are either going through this experience right now, who felt that they had a pretty strongly attached or close relationship, and then like are in the the shock phase, that this is like super common. This is not unusual to have a close relationship or even if it had difficulties, but think you know your kid pretty well, not be sort of absent, uh, very present in their life and miss this whole big swath. Um, So I just want to share that. So the whole book is you sharing that for the better part of the year, this was really difficult for you. Yes. It's like, you know, there are times I, I, I was, I was a little shocked. <laughs> I was like, wow, Baria, this is so deeply honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but staying kind of connected with where you are now, what yeah. would your older, wiser self now say if she was standing beside you? at that phone call, coaching you through it. Yeah. You know, those, those moments, what would you say to your younger self? Um, I mean, I think there's a lot I would say to my younger self. One of the main things would be just, just stop and listen rather than reacting because the, the, I just started reacting and my mind started racing. Like, what am I going to do? How am I going to fix this? How am I going to get out of this, you know, situation Um, rather than stopping and listening? Um, So I would definitely say that. Um, I would, you know, tell myself um, everything is going to be more than okay beyond what you can possibly, you know, imagine because, you know, the possibility that this might even be true comes with so much fear for what your child's future is going to be. Yeah. Um, And, you know, so if I could just, and you, I just couldn't picture um, that I would ever, you know, see this person as my daughter um, and, and was so hard for me to think that, you know, she could like thrive and have a full life as, you know, the beautiful young woman that she is now. So, you know, I would say the listen, um, you know, everything's going to be okay. Um, and, you know, really don't underestimate your own capacity to evolve, you know, along with, with your child. I mean, no, no other um, experience have ever had um, has changed me this much. Um, I can't imagine that I will have another experience that will change me this much in the future. But now I know, you know, any, you know, anything really, anything is possible. Um, and it's just, uh, it's amazing what your mind and heart um, can not just adapt to, but really just grow to like love and be enriched, you know, by. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but, That's but beautiful. I think primary would be just, just stop and listen, just mm-hmm. stop and listen. So that's kind of the emotional part and the, the mother in you. Right. 
it's interesting how even as a pediatrician, you you share quite a bit in the book about like they never taught this in school, <laughs> they, right. you know, and obviously there have been um, great advances in, you know, the, the last number of years. Mm-hmm. What are some of the myths that you as a pediatrician had actually internalized that you now professionally realize were wrong? Are there some things that you know, you had accepted and um, maybe some of the things that your child wanted, you dismissed out of hand because you felt you had professional insight, some kind of epistemic privilege where you knew better. Where were you wrong? Yeah. You know, um, as pediatricians, we, you know, back when I was training, you know, we were taught that kids declare their gender by three or four. You know, I mean, I think that's really the biggest myth. Oh, if you you don't just wake up and be trans when you're 13 years old, you know. So if you did, if if when you were three, four, five years old, you didn't, you know, resist the gender that was imposed on you, you couldn't possibly be, you know, trans. I think that's sort of, you know, really the biggest myth. Um, and you know, when, so Ava came out in 2017 um, and the American Academy of Pediatrics put out their first policy on supporting trans youth in September of 2018, uh, you know, uh, like about 15, you know, 15 months after she came out, there really was nothing. Um, you know, fortunately since 2018, um, slowly we're, you know, we're getting more and more information, but, you know, even now, as, you know, uh, as physicians, uh, you know, we're all required to do like a certain amount of continuing medical education credits every year to maintain our license. But there's nothing to, you know, uh, nothing dictates what you need to do those credits, you know, in. So if this doesn't end up being an area you're interested in, you don't learn anything about it, you know. Um, And so I think, uh, you know, we still have a long way to go in terms of just, you know, educating um, all primary care physicians on on how gender you know presents what the needs of this you know community is, but I think really the biggest myth uh, that we learned was kids declare their you know by three years old a kid can tell you if they're a boy or a girl mm-hmm. and that's no a kid at three years old a kid can tell you what their parent has told them they are exactly yeah yeah it's it's it was fascinating to. Um, read those parts of your book because even I as a layperson had internalized that I don't know where I got that from but just this subconscious belief that like well I would have seen something although now in retrospect it's like no there's something about puberty that it becomes very triggering mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's like now it's like oh the obviousness in retrospect that that right. couldn't possibly have been right ever right. um seems yeah, so so apparent. Um, but I I had internalized that too. So it was very comforting to read those kind of offhand statements you were making, like, oh, you can't do um, you know, these kinds of treatments now, it's too late, or or what have you. It's like, right. oh, that's very fascinating. Um so you were very quick to uh connect Ava with some resources. You know, you had that sense of, okay, therapy, here we go. And a lot of the book um, takes place, or at least it, a lot of what really stood out to me were the scenes where you and Ava are in the car, either driving to or from 
some therapy or family support service um, appointment. Mm -hmm. And you, at some point, it suggested to you, here, mom, maybe you should go get some therapy. This is a hard experience for you. And you, you spend a lot of the book writing and sharing your journals. And, and you, I think you even say in that scene, like, running is my therapy. Mm-hmm. And it's true when you were in private, in the car, running, there would be these breakdowns, et cetera. But I was kind of stumped, like, why isn't she getting therapy? <laughs> like, wouldn't yeah. it be so nice to have more support at this time? And right. it never kind of gets resolved. And I'm wondering, um, and even couples therapy wasn't brought up. I was like, God, I know how hard this has been on our whole. We had couples therapy, individual therapy, family therapy with the ex. I don't know how she's doing it. Right. Is, is it still true for you that that therapy for yourself was kind of a non-starter? Well, I think I definitely should have gone to therapy. Um, I felt like therapy would, I think there were a couple of factors. Um, Therapy would be um, another thing on my list of things to fit in. (laughs) And I felt like I don't have the time to fit in. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Certainly, initially, therapy would have been like an admission that um, maybe my kid is trans and I need to like deal, you know, deal with it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, versus, um, you know, w- when I'm in the phase of thinking, you know, she's not trans, so I just need to get therapy for her so that she realizes she's not, you know, so that the yeah. therapist can tell her, hey, you're not trans and we can, you know, move on. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, um, I think it was really just like, it's, you know, what, it's so hard to find therapists. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I was just doing too many things to add that to to my list. What happened is um, when my older son, my firstborn went to college, um, and this was after I had actually already turned in uh, the draft of my book and I had a publisher and everything was said and done. And my older son went to college, my firstborn. And I, then I had a a breakdown essentially. And I ended up in a therapist's office and, you know, and then worked with a therapist for a few months. And, and finally, you know, I told, and and I couldn't figure out why I was having such a hard time with my oldest going to college um, and that that landed me in a therapist's office versus, you know, having a trans <laughs> child transition didn't. Um, and then one day I said to the therapist, I said, you know what? I feel like I've lost two sons. And once I said that, which was something I hadn't verbalized really to anyone. I was actually able to move on and I did a few months of therapy. And of course, now I don't feel like I've lost any children. Um, But I did finally land in a therapist's office. Mm. So I should have gone earlier. That's so touching to hear. I feel like I've lost two sons. And that's so valid. That's right. so valid, even though you're like happy and you love them and you wouldn't want them any other way and you're, you know, all that stuff. It's right. still true as a mother. Like I, I was saying to my own son, um, you know, the adolescent brain is developing so rapidly in those 10 years, like at 14 to 24. So what feels like forever to you is actually 
like four months. <laughs> so, and whereas my adult brain is holding all this history. And so this actually feels like a nanosecond, you know? And so yeah. um, it, it does take a little while to catch up to the moment. And it takes a while for our spirit to catch up and be like, oh, wow, I've just gone through a major, like a massive personal revolution. Right. <laughs> and so that's very touching to hear that that yeah. ended up for you. I also want to say it is so hard to find therapists, no matter who you are, but particularly the more marginalized your identity is. Like, how would you find a therapist who could hold the positions that you hold as n not only the parent of um, a trans daughter, but as a first generation Iranian immigrant with, mm -hmm. you know, like who has is also a professional with profile and, and is visible as an author. And like, these are all very difficult things. So yeah. I, I want to just share that so that folks who are looking for their therapist, if it's not working out, you know, it's like dating, you kind of yeah. like, you have to go through them. We, we do a thing where it's like, or we have done a thing looking for good therapists where it's like, okay, we'll choose five and we start at the top. Yeah. But we assume we may have to date them all. But, yes. you know, we give each one some time. Right. Because um, it is. It's really hard to find somebody that you can have yeah. rapport with. I'm, I'm yeah. glad that you had that. Has that changed the dynamic in your family, maybe for your kids or even for your uh, husband around, you know, the the maybe any stigma that there might have been? Yeah. I mean, I don't actually... I don't think I had stigma around mm. therapy. You know, I'm definitely have always been very open about it and thought it's great and that every, you know, I, you know, yeah. that everybody should, you know, have, yeah. uh, have a therapist. So, um, yeah, I think it was just, um, I think it was just time and, you know, all the things and there were so much to do and so many appointments and mm -hmm. it just, just it was just an overwhelming time. You were where just really I, in I it. failed to see that uh, the that it would be really really beneficial to take other some other things off my list and add therapy, you know, to my list. <laughs> right, right. That's that's good yeah. advice. Um, I could really relate to the grief that you felt at times, and yeah, the scenes of crying alone in the car, you know, mm -hmm. there, and there are so many losses on so many levels. Um, and I was thinking in preparing for this interview that it's such a tricky place to be in when you've had a child because it isn't like you just attended some birth. Like you, you were literally a portal for a human being to enter this whole new world. And as the birthing parent, it happens to us mm -hmm. and through us. And it's and we have, of course, our experience of it that is valid. It's very difficult to suddenly have that totally rescripted. Um, and for me, I was thinking maybe the name change pain that you talked about, mm -hmm. which I definitely felt. I felt the name change so deeply. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's just like part of this self-aggrandizing power trip that parents go on with children. But mm -hmm. also there their birthing and the blessing of their naming and the container we create for them with their name mm -hmm. is not a trifling thing. It's it's very um, focusing and it being a birthing parent absorbs a tremendous amount of our being. Um, so when it came to your child's name, 
it seemed like your whole family had strong feelings about it, even including your older son. Mm -hmm. Can you share why the name change was so significant for you and your partner and your family? Yeah, I think the name change in, in many ways, there were points where it's the name change, letting go of that old name was harder than letting go of the old gender. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for, for, in, for, in my, you know, culture in particular, you know, names all have, um, you know, usually have a meaning and, and a significance to them. And, you know, I had sort of uh, struggled most of my life with this, like, holding on to my Iranian identity at the same time as, you know, being, uh, trying to be an, you know, say that I am an American, just like everybody else. And, you know, uh, had always tried to kind of figured out this balance of what felt appropriate, you know, for, for my family and, you know, just felt very strongly about all three of my kids having Iranian names. And so, um, you know, my other two kids are Arman and Shada. Um, and Ava initially wanted, uh, the name Lucy. Um, and I, I just didn't have felt like that name didn't fit into our family. And so, having her, which Lucy is a lovely name, but it just doesn't have any significance in Iranian culture. Um, And so it felt like now not only are you changing, you know, like, you know, going by different gender, but you're also almost leaving our culture, leaving our family by going through a name, you know, this name that's so, you know, foreign. And, um, you know, the name... uh, uh, the name Ava, we we have it in our culture. We we, we pronounce it uh, Ava, and sometimes I pronounce her name Ava, and but she generally goes by Ava. And um, you know, so you know, my uh, older son Arman, his um, name means like hopes and aspirations, and Shada means passions. Um, and Ava in, in uh, Iranian means like a beautiful, strong, resounding voice, uh, which is actually very appropriate for her. As a, you know, like a, as a trans person who's standing up for who she is, um, and also because she has a beautiful singing voice and she, and she sings. So um, I just, names have a lot of significance for me. And so um, as her parents not getting to play a role in choosing the name um, was really difficult for me to accept. So, you know, we had that battle and, and for a while I felt like, you know, maybe we pushed too hard. Maybe we should have let her go by the name um, Lucy. But uh, fortunately in uh, the last couple of years, she's actually said that she's glad we, we, you know, that we sort of forced the issue and that we did go with um, Ava and um, that she really does like it. And she does feel like it does fit her better than Lucy. So, but, you know, I'm, I'm still not 100% sure we did, you know, the right thing. Not every parent, you know, decides to um, be that forceful in, in <laughs> with their, you know, child and the name they choose. But it did have a lot of significance. And, you know, even my my son, you know, was like, uh, yeah, you guys should you guys should choose the name. You're still the parents, you know. Um, and yeah, but I think it, it was really the cultural um cultural aspect of it that was really, really important to me, uh, that it felt like a name that still aligned with, with our, with our cultural identity. That it really was one of the most, um, sort of 
uplifting parts of the story for me that I was like, oh, this is so good that like even Ava, there's something in her that seems to still want to belong in her family and the culture. And so, yeah, I thought that that line, it was so mm-hmm. memorable in the book when Armin says, you're still the parents. <laughs> I can yeah. just like almost hear him saying it. And yeah. also, you know, your husband was like th- around the name that seemed to be the one that triggered the most emotion mm-hmm. in the men in your family. And I was yes. like, oh, they really care about this. This is like really important and part yeah. of belonging. And I was so happy that, um, you know, even as a, a young person going through so many changes where everything kind of feels um, up for grabs in a way, like mm-hmm. all the things that you thought were true, maybe not true. And you're kind of exploratory and curious. I was glad that even with all of that happening, Ava kind of settled into something resonant um, on yeah. so many levels. So I'm yeah. so happy that she's still happy with it. Yes. Um, so growing up as a first generation Iranian American, your anxieties around belonging were you know, sometimes maybe often triggered as Ava's transition became more public. But I found some of the sweetest moments in your story were the expressions of unconditional love from your family. There, granted, of course, there were difficulties with, you know, holidays. God, I know that <laughs> experience of yes. what are they going to wear to Easter dinner or whatever, and with your your mother, etc. Um, but you know, you it, it brought back your own experience of feeling unconditionally loved by your auntie in mm-hmm. Iran as you were a child. And then there's this beautiful scene uh, with longtime family friends of your parents that you include um, that I'd love for you to share. And also just I'd love for you to say more about what surprised you about the elders around yeah. you. And what did you learn about how to deal with change from the elders in your life? Yeah, you know, I was really scared to tell my mom. I thought I thought that my mom was going to somehow blame this on me, you know, like as if I'd caused this by being um too busy to, you know, um I don't know, you know, not parenting, you know, right, not giving her the attention she needed so she would be resorting to this to get my attention. Um and and also that my mom just wouldn't understand it at all. Um and so I was so afraid to tell her and when I told her, I mean, right away and I don't even know if she definitely understood it or not, but but right away she said everything's going to be okay. Everything I think she could um, probably feel the pain in, in my voice when I told her. And so, you know, her immediate instinct was yeah, everything's going to be okay. Um, and you know, don't, don't stress, don't worry. We're, we're going to figure this out. We're going to get through this. And then my father spent the next several days, like researching and reading everything he could read about, um, you know, trans people, um, and, you know, called back and, and said, you know, here's the situation and we just have to, you know, support the kid, you know, and take it day by day. And I was just really, really surprised. And I, and I kept trying to explain to my mom, you know, this isn't about like being gay mom. This is like a you know, this is gender, you know, um, because I was like, maybe she doesn't understand what I'm trying to tell her because she seems accepting, you know, and I'm not expecting that. And um, so I was, you know, and, and she was, she was fine. And uh, I mean, I had no question that my siblings would, would be supportive. Um, 
and you know, you uh, like, you know, my parents' friends all like, I was worried about what were my parents' friends, uh, you know, going to say, and was that going to be uncomfortable for my parents? And, you know, we, my dad's um, oldest friend from childhood who, you know, at that time is, you know, in his um, early seventies, now he's in his uh, late seventies, you know, um, sent a bouquet of flowers, you know, with a card saying we ate, you know, to Ava saying, you know, Ava, we love and support you. And we're so proud of you. And, and, um, you know, as soon as they heard, and it was just, people really um, rallied. Um, and, and that was just really, really great. And so I just, you know, I talk to other parents going through this all the time who are so scared to tell their family members. Um, and I just say, you know, to actually just give people a chance because they might surprise you. Um, you know, we make these assumptions, but people will surprise you. Um, I, I do, you know, at that time I didn't, I think I didn't really include too much in the book about my husband's family's reaction. His, his siblings were super supportive right from the start. Um, his parents had a harder time and I do mention his, you know, uh, my husband's mom sent me this article that I, that I didn't like. Um, but, um, you know, they came you know, so we had a little time with them where we, where we just kind of said, you know, uh, you either, either you're on board or you're, or you're not on board. Um, and you know, they took a little time and then they got on board, um, and really made sure that we protected her from, um, anybody who wasn't going to be, you know, a positive person, um, in her life. So, but yeah, I would, you know, I tell people all the time, actually give people a chance, you know, uh, your true friends and family, they're, they're going to be there for you. Um, and you know, when it's, whether it's religion or culture, you know, when it, when they see it happening in their own loved one, it just changes you know, it changes everything, you know, and some people aren't accepting. And, and so you, then you just say, okay, um, take some time. And if you have questions, come back with questions, but until you're going to accept this, um, you're not in our, you know, mm-hmm. going to be in communication with us. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We're not um, in community. Mm-hmm. And, um, most, most of the time they'll come around. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you brought up that it, has, wasn't always easy, you know, uh, it, it's, um, it's not, your story is, is not unique, but it's also not everybody's story where yeah. people come around within a year yeah. or what yeah. have you. Right. Um, also we didn't talk very much and, and I don't want to dwell on it, but, um, you know, it had been a long, difficult road with Ava in terms of, her mood and, Mm -hmm. you know, sensitivities and different things from quite a young age. Yeah. And, um, and so one of the things that came up for me is I think it's important to name that class privilege does play a pretty significant role in a parent's ability to find and afford services to support their trans kids. What are your thoughts on how we as parents of, um, I would call it significant privilege. I'm not college educated. I, I'm not a doctor. That's I don't live in Beverly Hills, but I would still consider myself to be somebody who um, has access to education. Mm-hmm. I live in a large enough town that there are a few um, uh, 
supportive therapists who take an intersectional approach. Like, you know, however, I, I, I did not have the great experience that you had, for instance, with um, transforming families and like the services for families that are in LA that that happy scene <laughs> was like not what I was experiencing in mm-hmm. the parents of trans kids group where the kids were experiencing significant mental and emotional challenges, mm-hmm. m- much not even to do with gender dysphoria or, you know, society's view of their gender, but just pre-existing for so many reasons. Yeah. And they were still struggling Um before, during, after transit, it was just how difficult it is to get services. So what do you think, what are your thoughts on some of the levers we could apply pressure to or, or where we should put resources to affect change, to make, um, trans aware and inclusive, um, care more accessible and the norm. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I was definitely aware that I had had do have tremendous privilege, you know, I think, you know, for me, um, I mean, a lot of these, um, treatments are very, very costly. Um, you know, we have spent a lot of money on hair removal, um, (laughs) that we've had to pay for, you know, out of pocket, um, when we couldn't, um, we, you know, it took us a long time to get her puberty blocker, um, you know, authorized and paid for by insurance. But I knew that in the end, if insurance didn't pay for it, I could pay for it. Um, I could afford um, her um, therapist who didn't take our insurance. Um, So, you know, and, and then, you know, I had this community um, around me, a huge community in, in Los Angeles. And I had um, the best center for trans care seven miles from my home. You know, (laughs) Um, there's so many barriers for um, appropriate access, you know, for kids. I mean, there's people who live several hours away or multiple states away from somebody who's providing, you know, gender affirming care. Um, You know, we, it's funny, I just read an article that was talking about how we're making great strides um, with trans care in white affluent families, but that in lower socioeconomic, you know, groups and, um, you know, some racial groups that we've hardly made any strides in their access to care. Um, So I personally do believe that, you know, family, I mean, I know, we know that family support makes a massive, massive difference, right? So we know that, you know, kids who are supported um, by their families have, uh, you know, much lower suicide risk, you know, the same as like cisgender teens and, you know, what a big, what a big difference that makes. So um, I really think, and, and, you know, so family support, um, for there to be family support, there needs to be family, you know, acceptance. And I think in a lot of sort of minority groups, um, this is still, you know, not accepted, you know, as, as much. Right. And so I think like visibility, um, particularly people of color being visible, um, and, you know, showing that, you know, um, you know, our, our kids and teens and, you know, young adults, um, are, can be, you know, thriving and successful and lead, you know, full lives. Um, and, and just, you know, showing acceptance, um, 
really then goes a long way for these, you know, minority communities to start accepting their kids and, you know, with acceptance goes getting them to the appropriate, you know, provider. And um, so, I mean, there's so much that can be done, but I really, really think um, visibility um, helps a lot. And particularly, you know, uh, so when I, you know, and and it's great when we have, um, you know, various, you know, celebrities, you know, who come out, uh, but even, even greater when we see, you know, like someone of color, you know, who's, who's supporting their kid. Cause I think that really helps a lot. And then also really great when we're seeing, you know, somebody in Congress who's trans and, you know, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we don't want to just, cause, because just seeing celebrities be successful is not what, you know, is not an experience that's applicable to, you know, most, you know, people. So we want to see, you know, trans adults who are professors and who are out and, you know, who are physicians, who are teachers, who are librarians, who are in in politics, you know, in in all fields, you know, uh, out and visible and, and, and leading successful lives. And, mm-hmm. and having children and having families. And, you know, I think really, you know, s- seeing more and more positive examples um, then makes, you know, people more accepting. And when people are more accepting, then we provide, you know, then they're, you know, they get care. Um, and, and, and then we just need to improve access to care. We need more gender affirming uh, providers. We need um, more, you know, I mean, one thing that's great is, you know, um, like Planned Parenthood starting to provide gender affirming care for um, 16, you know, and above. So, you know, having it be affordable and accessible to everybody. Um, mm-hmm. And and then the mental health is a whole other, you know, issue, but affordable uh, mental health care is is huge as well. So absolutely. it 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 It's so sad to me that therapy is really... Um, relegated to the realm of the elite and you know it uh, ugh, so frustrating um yeah yeah i i love all of your suggestions and especially that um so much of it is w- what's happening in the home and 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 the sense of acceptance and feeling safe and seen and secure and soothed with the people that you live with yeah. is one of the ways that we can help them get to the next step right which is like a, soon you'll be out of school soon you'll be thinking about what you want to do soon you you know and and like we're gonna keep scaffolding your self-esteem until you get to the place where you know you have a bit more agency about making choices about maybe where you live and if you want to co-locate a little closer to services or if you you know those kinds of things that um I just think so much about the small town that I grew up in and it now I go back through my mind and be like oh that person, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I, they, I yeah. see they were masking now or what have you, you know, they were under the radar because what other options did they have? So, right. um, yeah, I really appreciate your suggestions. So I'm looking forward to your answer to the final question now oh. that I know that you had a breakdown and ended up in therapy, just like all of us. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is so great. She's not yeah. just Wonder Woman. She actually, <laughs> yeah. yes, she, she broke down. <laughs> yes. yes. Like, she's so humanizing. I, I mean, I say that because when people say they don't have a therapist, which I understand for economic reasons for sure, but when they don't have one and they could, I'm always like, wow. How, so, how does how, how does that work? How do you live? 
I don't understand. So the last question on the podcast is, um, you know, and I think for you, I would put, I'd put a, a, a bit of a lens on it. So when you consider the intolerance and the challenges uh, in the world, how do you cope with grief and rage? Yeah, I think it's so hard not to get um, discouraged by, you know, what you see in the media trying to, you know, take away, um, you know, rights from trans people, um, you know, what's, you know, going on in politics. Um, and so I try to sort of uh, balance the the feed I get with, you know, with positive feed, you know, as well. And, you know, look at people who are, you know, thriving and, and succeeding. Um, I try to make a difference in whatever way, you know, that I can. Um, I just really have um, decided that I can't let that, I can't dwell on negativity like that. And, uh, you know, I, I have to be, you know, positive and, um, I don't want, um, you know, b being trans, you know, is, is always going to be difficult. It's, it's always going to be harder, you know, and different than a cisgender experience. And obviously I'm not trans. So I, you know, I can never know, you know, what, what it's really like, but, um, I just, I, and part of me also thinks that, you know, Whenever, when I see that there's sort of backlash, it's because we, because progress is happening that we're having backlash. So it's not always negative, the backlash. If we weren't making so much progress and fighting for rights and being so visible and having people, you know, um, you know, be in Congress who are trans and, you know, doing TV shows who are trans and, you know, writing books and, um, you know, doing all these great things, there wouldn't be all this backlash. So I, you know, I also think about that part of the backlash is because every time there's progress, there's backlash, and then mm -hmm. we make more progress, and then there'll be more backlash. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, if, 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 it, if there was no backlash, it would mean that we weren't doing what we're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. <laughs> it makes so much sense. Yeah. And thank you so much for putting your work into the world and adding your voice to this cause because, um, yeah, your book made so much sense. It was uh, very reassuring. And I really appreciate you coming on to talk more about it. Thanks so much, Faria. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. What a privilege to speak with and learn from Paria today. Since writing her book, Paria has since started the Pediatric and Adolescent Gender Wellness Clinic at Cedars-Sinai. In the show notes for today's episode, you'll find links to Paria's social media, website, where to buy her book, and also contact information at Cedars-Sinai. Find the show notes at numinouspodcast.com. For longtime listeners, you'll know that this is my listener shout out section. I would like to thank the three listeners in Ishmir, Turkey. I assume you're all friends or family. And if you're not, one of you should organize a meetup because in the entire country, what are the chances that my three listeners all come from Ishmir? I also want you to know I went on Forvo.com to hear how Turkish people say Ishmir. 
and I hope I'm doing it justice. Folks, if you don't know about Forvo, you oughta. This is not a paid advertisement, though I think maybe they should pay me. Um, this is just me offering a life hack. Forvo.com is where you can go to hear native speakers pronouncing words. So if there's a word in a language that's foreign to you and you want to hear how to pronounce it correctly, you go to Forvo.com, F-O-R-V-O.com. And like maybe some generous soul out there has recorded themselves saying it. That's where I go to check my Scottish Gaelic when I'm not sure. Forvo.com. There was like three or four people who had all pronounced Ishmir. And uh, that was super helpful. So thank you. Thank you for listening. I think it's very, very cool. It's very cool. Um, Yeah, super appreciate you spending time with me. If you'd like to stay connected, you can follow me on Instagram at Carmen Spaniola. Or you could go to my website and find out how you can access nearly all of my current offerings for one low monthly membership in the Numinous Network. All my courses and about like 15 to 20 live calls a month. All my workshops. Just sign up for even just a month and give it a try. All one low price. You'll find all the details at CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care. <laughs>